we're starting today with the story. So, yeah, storytelling's best done sat down, eh? I don't have to stand forever then. Right. So we're reading from Esther 4 through to Esther chapter 5, verse 8. And I'm going to be reading it from the message version. So Esther 4. When Mordecai learned what had been done, he ripped his clothes to shreds and put on sackcloth and ashes. Then he went out into the streets of the city, crying out in loud and bitter cries. He came only as far as the king's gate, for no one dressed in sackcloth was allowed to enter the king's gate. As the king's order was posted in every province, there was a loud lament among the Jews, fasting, weeping, wailing, and most of them stretched out on sackcloth and ashes. Esther's maids and eunuchs came and told her. The queen was stunned. She sent fresh clothes to Mordecai so he could take off his sackcloth, but he wouldn't accept them. Esther called for Hatak, one of the royal eunuchs whom the king had assigned to wait on her, and told him to go to Mordecai and get the full story of what was happening. So Hatak went to Mordecai in the town square in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him. He also told him the exact amount of money that Haman had promised to deposit in the royal bank to finance the massacre of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the bulletin that had been posted in Susa, ordering the massacre so he could show it to Esther when he reported back, with instructions to go to the king and intercede and plead with him for her people. Hatak came back and told Esther everything Mordecai had said. Esther talked it over with Hatak and then sent him back to Mordecai with this message. Everyone who works for the king here and even the people out in the provinces know that there is a single fate for every man or woman who approaches the king without being invited. Death. The one exception is if the king extends his gold scepter, then he or she may live. And it's been 30 days now since I've been invited to come to the king. When Hatak told Mordecai what Esther had said, Mordecai sent her this message. Don't think that just because you live in the king's house, you're the one Jew who will get out of this alive. If you persist in staying silent at a time like this, help and deliverance will arrive for the Jews from someplace else, but you and your family will be wiped out. Who knows? Maybe you were made queen for just such a time as this. Esther sent her answer back to Mordecai. Go and get all the Jews living in Susa together. Fast for me. Don't eat or drink for three days, either day or night. I and my maids will fast with you. If you will do this, I'll go to the king, even though it's forbidden. If I die, I die. Mordecai left and carried out Esther's instructions. Three days later, Esther dressed in her royal robes and took up a position in the inner court of the palace in front of the king's throne room. The king was on his throne facing the entrance. 
When he noticed Queen Esther standing in the court, he was pleased to see her. The king extended the gold scepter in his hand. Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. The king asked, And what's your desire, Queen Esther? What do you want? Ask, and it's yours, even if it's half my kingdom. If it please the king, said Esther, let the king come with Haman to a dinner I've prepared for him. Get Haman at once, said the king, so we can go to dinner with Esther. So the king and Haman joined Esther at the dinner she had arranged. As they were drinking the wine, the king said, Now, what is it that you want? Half of my kingdom is not too much to ask. Just ask. Esther answered, Here's what I want. If the king favors me and is pleased to do what I desire and ask, let the king and Haman come again tomorrow to the dinner I will fix for them. Then I'll give a straight answer to the king's question. We finished last week with the king and Haman, whom he'd promoted to be the highest official in the government, sitting back, sharing a drink together as the city of Susa reeled from the news that they'd just received. Haman, on behalf of the king, had just issued a decree stating that on March 7th of the following year, all the Jews under the king's reign would be slaughtered and all their goods would be taken by those who killed them. The Jews were of no use to the king, was Haman's reasoning. They didn't live by the king's laws. They lived by their own laws. So it was in the king's king's best interests, according to Haman, that they all be slaughtered. With Haman paying the price that it cost to do just that. And our wavering, influenceable, and prideful King Xerxes, of course, thought that that sounded like a marvelous idea. And so he gave over his signet ring to Haman, declaring that he could do with it as he liked. And he could also use the king's money for his, and his people for whatever he wanted. But while we're told that the Jews in the Persian kingdom were reeling and they were confused and they didn't know what was going on with this violent decree, there was one Jew in the kingdom who was oblivious to everything. And that was Queen Esther. Chapter 4 opens with Mordecai responding to what he's heard with fasting, weeping, wailing, mourning. Mordecai tears his clothes in distress and dresses himself instead in the appropriate mourning clothes of burlap or sackcloth and ashes. And he comes to the king's gate crying aloud a bitter wail. And when Queen Esther's eunuchs and attendants tell her, describe to her Mordecai's condition, she is deeply distressed herself. She quickly sends clothes for her cousin so that he can replace the sackcloth he's wearing, but he refuses them. Esther hurriedly then calls upon Haytak, one of her attendants, and sends him out to Mordecai to ask, what's going on? What's the reason for your distress, for your trouble and your bitter mourning? And you would think that the queen would know. This decree has gone out from the palace, and you would think that the queen would keep up with the royal decrees going out. 
But the picture that we get is that Esther was completely oblivious. She had no idea that she now had a target on her back. She had no idea that she, a Jew, had been sentenced to death. The story then enters the scene of dialogue between Esther and Mordecai, but it's all done through the attendant, attendant Hathak. And I reckon he really must have gotten his steps up that day, going back and forth between them. But up until this point, Esther hasn't really had a lot to do in the story that's named after her. This is the first scene in which we actually hear her own words, that we hear her own words spoken. As far as we know, she hasn't really had much control over the story thus far. She's been kind of helpless, fairly powerless in this narrative that's just sort of swept her along with decrees and banquets and whatnot. And then here we hear her speak. We read this exchange between herself and Mordecai as she learns about the horror that is awaiting her people. And she's struck with this demand from Mordecai that she is the one to do something about it. And Esther, she comes to this point, sort of a crisis point, I guess, and she's faced with this decision of what will she do? She has a choice to make. She has options that need to be weighed up. And as we've been asking, where is God at work throughout the series? This morning, we're asking, where is God at work in the moment of decision? I wonder if maybe it's because it had been a while since Esther had had to make a decision for herself, but possibly it's more likely because this was an enormous, near impossible decision to make. Esther's first tactic in her response to Mordecai includes finding a loophole. After hearing Mordecai's request for her to go to the king and to intercede with him on behalf of on behalf of her people, Esther's response is, oh, well, that's just not possible. She sends Hatak running back to Mordecai, explaining that one does not just invite themselves before the king, rather the king has to request that you come to him. And Esther's presence hasn't been asked for for 30 days now. And the penalty for appearing unwelcomed before the king, Esther has Hatak remind Mordecai, is death. And I can't imagine that really that was an easy message for Esther to send to her cousin as he wept and wailed out there at the king's gate. I can't imagine that Esther really felt great about letting him know that there was nothing really that she could do. I mean, what could she do? Her hands were tied. She couldn't just appear before the king without being asked. Surely that would mean she would die. But if she didn't, her family in Susa would die. But she couldn't. She just couldn't. It just wasn't right. She just couldn't go before the king unasked. Sorry, Mordecai, there's just nothing more that I can do. And maybe Esther hoped that Mordecai would just take that. That he'd be like, oh, okay, well, thanks for your time, Esther, I understand. 
And maybe she thought he'd walk away from the king's gate, accepting his fate and just thinking, well, you know, you win some, you lose some. And maybe she hoped that that would kind of bring her some relief, that she could now rest easy knowing that she'd weighed it all up, she'd done the best that she could, and nothing was turning up for her. So no matter what, that was that, despite how devastating the outcome might be. But Mordecai, he certainly wouldn't just take it. He didn't just take it. And Mordecai came back to Esther firing, surely letting her know that her loophole excuse was not going to be enough. Mordecai sent her this message. Don't think that just because you live in the king's house, you're the one Jew who will get out of this alive. If you persist in staying silent at a time like this, help and deliverance will come for the Jews from someplace else, but you and your family will be wiped out. Who knows? Maybe you were made queen for just such a time as this. I imagine that Mordecai would have delivered these words probably quite forcefully, and I wonder if he spent some time with Haytack just training him, you know, making sure he got the tone right, making sure he got the force right for when he delivered the message at the other end. I imagine it would have only been right to have spittle flying from his mouth as he spat out, don't think for a moment that you'll come out of this alive. And then I imagine he would have to lock eyes with Esther, trying to convey that same disappointment and disgust that Mordecai was feeling as he heard Esther's initial response, assuring her that even if you do not help out, deliverance will arrive for us some, from someplace else, but you and your family will surely die. And then maybe it changed to a more quiet earnestness as Mordecai calmed down a little and turned to pleading, saying, who knows, maybe you were created queen for just such a time as this. And we don't know, we're not told exactly what Esther felt when she received this message from Mordecai. We're not told how she responded in the moment, whether maybe she cried at the force Haytack was relaying Mordecai's disgust with, or if she was fearful as she received Mordecai's certainty that her life would be cut short. Or maybe she felt empowered with his words, knowing that maybe this could be her time. Maybe this was what she was called for. We're not told how she felt, but what we are told is what she did. Regardless of her feelings, there was something in those words spoken to her from Mordecai that spurred her into action. And who knows but it might have been the who knows. Queen Esther of Persia was, after all, Hadassah, a Jewish girl raised in a Jewish family who lived by Jewish law, law which was recorded for them in their holy scriptures. And having been raised in a Jewish family, it's very likely that Hadassah grew up on those holy scriptures, learning them, memorizing them, and the Holy Scriptures, the same ones the author draws from right here. 
And whether or not we assume that Esther acts because she remembers these words of the prophet Joel in Mordecai's words, the connections between Esther chapter 4 and Joel chapter 2 are quite clear and quite beautiful. So in Joel chapter 2, amongst the threat of impending judgment and attack, comes a call of repentance from verse 12 to 14. It says, this is why the Lord says, turn to me now while there is still time. Give me your hearts. Come with fasting, weeping and mourning. Don't tear your clothing in grief, but tear your hearts instead. Return to the Lord your God, for he is merciful and compassionate, slow to get angry and filled with love. He is eager to relent and not to punish. Who knows? Perhaps he will give you a reprieve, sending you a blessing instead of a curse. Esther 4, it opens with Mordecai tearing his clothes in grief. It opens with the Jewish people, with God's people, fasting, weeping, mourning. A scene so similar to what's spoken of here in Joel 2. God's people are in distress They're fearing the judgment, the attack that's coming for them. And so they act out in this way before God, despairing over their situation, helpless in their grief. And into that hopelessness, God speaks, saying, Turn to me now. Give me your hearts. Come as you are and return to the Lord, because I am merciful and compassionate, and filled with unfailing love. I am for you, not against you. And then the question, who knows? In Joel 2.14, the same question that Mordecai asks Esther in chapter Esther 4, verse 14, who knows? The prophet Joel declares, when you turn to him, perhaps God will give you a reprieve. Perhaps God might take pity on you. Perhaps God might spare you and send you a blessing instead of this curse. Who knows, Mordecai declares, if you act, you might find that perhaps you were made queen for just such a time as this. Just like in Joel 2, in Esther 4, there comes this call to repentance that echoes the prophet's words. God's people in Joel were losing themselves in their hopelessness. They were giving up into their grief and their despair. And God calls them to action, to turn to him. Because who knows what might happen when they act. And in Esther 4, people, God's people once again are lost in their hopelessness. And Esther, she's tried to wash her hands of the situation to lose herself in her own helplessness. And this time, Mordecai speaks to her the call to action, to act on behalf of her people, on behalf of God's people. Because who knows what could happen if she acts? Joel 2 verses 15 to 17 brings further instruction for the people of God on how they should act in this time. It says, Blow the ram's horn in Jerusalem. 
Announce a time of fasting. Call the people together for a solemn meeting. Gather all the people, the elders, the children, and even the babies. Call the bridegroom from his quarters and the bride from her private room. Let the priests who minister in the Lord's presence stand and weep between the entry room to the temple and the altar. Let them pray. Spare your people, Lord. In Esther chapter 4, verses 15 to 17, Queen Esther begins to act. Queen Esther blows the ram's horn throughout the Persian Empire, sending word back to Mordecai to rally all the Jews in the kingdom, to announce a time of fasting. Esther here is calling her people, calling God's people, to three days of fasting, three days of seeking God, and three days of calling help. Lord, spare your people. Esther assures Mordecai that she will fast too. She will pray too, along with her maids. And then, even though she knows the risks, even though she knows it's not allowed, she will then go and approach the king. Her words are quite chilling. If I die, I die. Esther acts because who knows? Perhaps she was made queen for just such a time as this. Who knows? Perhaps God will move. And I just can't even imagine how scared Esther must have been when three days later she was standing, dressed in her royal robes, in front of the king in his king's court, just hoping that he would receive her, that she wouldn't be, that she wouldn't be killed when he noticed her there. And I'm impressed that she even managed to stay standing. Because then the relief... That must have washed through her when she saw that the king was pleased to see her. When she saw that gold scepter extended out towards her and she could approach the king. So Esther gets her chance. Her life is spared, at least for now. And she carries on with her plan of action. And when the king asks what he can do for her, she invites the king and Haman to share dinner with her, a very simple request. Then at dinner, the king asks again, what really can I do for her? Surely you must tell me now. But Esther acts coyly once more, inviting the king and Haman to another dinner the following night. And then, yes, at tomorrow's dinner, yes, definitely, she will then let the king know what it is that she really wants. And just like the king had to wait, you'll have to wait till next week to find out what she really wants. But this passage, it hinges on these two words. Who knows? Where is God at work in the moment of decision? Who knows? Because in the moment of decision, the importance doesn't really rest on defining exactly where God is or finding exactly which door or which choice he might be waiting in. In the moment of decision, the importance rests on defining exactly where you are in relation to God. 
And I don't know if you've ever had to make a decision. Judging by the fact you're all alive, I would assume yes. At some point, you've probably made a decision because it ends up happening in life, you know, a necessary part of life. But I know that when I've had to make a decision, often a big one, like say when I was choosing what to do after school or what I was going to do um, with my studies and that sort of thing, Often when I've had to make big decisions like that, I haven't found God appearing through the clouds with a big neon sign pointing to exactly where I should go or pointing to exactly what I should choose. Instead, in most of my big decisions, say with the things like choosing what to do after school, etc., etc., the overwhelming answer I quite often get from God is a little bit, who knows? And that can be a little bit unnerving to get that response from God. Because we talk a lot about doing what God has called us to do. And we use language like make good decisions, choose the right thing, what's best to do. And so when it comes to the moment of decision, we can be tearing our hair out and stressing over these words, good, right, best. And I don't know about you, but I've tied myself up in knots when making big decisions because the way that we talk about it and this language that we get used to using leaves me thinking, what if I choose the bad? What if I choose the wrong? What if I choose the worst option by mistake? Then what will God do with me? And where will God be? Because God certainly can't be in the bad option. God would never be in the wrong option. You could never find God in the worst option. Isn't God just going to be waiting in the one option that he's called you to? And I remember weighing up, say, the choice I had when leaving school of what to do. And I genuinely thought, if I chose the wrong option, if I opened the wrong door and walked through it, that God wouldn't be there. He'd just be waiting behind that other door like, oh, I guess she's not showing up. And so when we ask this question, where is God at work in the moment of decision, we have to be careful not to be asking, which one door do we think God's going to be behind? Which one door will we open to find God there with a hard hat on, hivers at work, toiling away for us? The reality is that God is never at work behind just one of those doors. The reality is that in the moment of decision, God wants to be at work in us. In the moment of decision, God wants to be at work in us. That's why at crisis time, in Joel 2, the prophet tells his people, turn to God now while there is time. Give God your heart. Return to the Lord your God. He is eager to relent. Who knows, perhaps he will give you a reprieve and send blessing instead of this curse. At crisis time, the answer lies in turning to God. The answer lies in giving God your heart. The answer lies in returning to God, the one who is merciful, compassionate, slow to anger, and filled with unfailing love. 
for he is eager to relent and not to punish. And who knows? Things might change. And we see this demonstrated in Esther 4. Esther blows the metaphorical ram's horn and calls God's people together, asking them to pray, asking them to fast, asking them to come together as they are, with their bitterness and their grief, and spend time in prayer asking, spare your people, Lord. In the moment of decision, Esther did try by herself. She tried to come up with something before she realized that what the situation called for, what the situation needed, was not for her to figure it out, not for her to arrive at the one door or the one decision. The situation, what it really called for was for God. The situation called for her to choose her God and for her to go to him and allow him to work in and to work through her. And in Esther 4, here for the first time in this story, Esther identifies herself as one of God's people. It was quite a relief for me when in this decision of choosing what to do after school, when I realized that actually, no matter what I picked, no matter which door I chose to walk through, God was still going to be there with me. I remember this moment of realization dawning on me, just like as simply as the sun comes up in the morning. And I felt a bit silly because, you know, it seems so obvious. It seems so, the answer is so simple and so freeing. But I'd sat for so long with this thinking that I needed to choose good or right, or best, and it was quite the revelation that all I had ever needed to do was choose God. So now when I get a who knows response from God, now when he kind of says, anything goes, you know, whatever you choose, I will be there for you. I know that it's an opportunity just for me to choose him to choose God and to rest assured in that knowledge that he will be there for me. For he is always with me and always for me, no matter where I go, no matter what I choose. In the moment of decision, God wants to be at work in us, in you and in me. In the moment of decision, the good choice, the right choice, the best choice is always going to be God. Choose God first. And once we've chosen God first, who knows what might be coming? Perhaps you'll find deliverance and blessing. Perhaps you'll find yourself in exactly the right place and time that you've been called for. Perhaps you'll find that one of your options does in fact stand out more than the others. Or perhaps what you'll find is blessed assurance that God is with you and that God is for you no matter where you go or what you might choose to do. In the moment of decision, God wants to be at work in us. In the moment of decision, where is God at work with you? Let's pray.
God, we thank you that you are always for us and that you are always with us. We thank you that you don't hide yourself from us. We thank you that you don't wait for us simply in one option or the other. We thank you that you do not abandon us, that no matter what path we're walking, Lord, you will walk with us. You will guide us and you will lead us. We thank you, Lord, that we can't take you by surprise. We thank you that you are supreme. We thank you, Lord, that you hold all things together. That you are at work in the background always, even when we don't see it. God, I pray that in decisions, that we would remember to choose you first. That you were the good, you were the best, you were the right choice at all times. And I pray, God, that as we choose you first, as we turn to you, as we give you our hearts, as we return to you, that you would guide our steps, that we would rest in the assurance that you are with us and you are for us. And I pray that we would learn to trust you more deeply. Thank you, God, for who you are. And I pray as we consider where you might be at work in our decisions right now, Lord, I pray that your spirit would stir us to choose you, to choose being with you as we move forward and as we continue to look to the future. And thank you, God, for who you are. In Jesus' name, amen.